Well, thanks for coming out. God bless you guys. Um, I'll give you a little bit of time to turn there while I pray, but we're going to be all over, as I normally am. But we're going to be starting the, probably just an introduction, but starting the book of Nahum, everyone's favorite. <laughs> Old Testament prophet, you can get there if you turn to your table of contents. Or after Micah, after Jonah, before Habakkuk, kind of in the middle of the minor prophets. So Father, we just pray that you would bless this time, that you would speak to us. Um, thank you just because we know that you're good, and uh, whatever you've put in your word for us is to bless us, so we just pray that it would minister to us uh, the way you desire it to, and uh, that you'd be glorified in it, in Jesus' name, amen. So, FYI, our schedule coming up, um, there will be no Christmas Eve service this year, so Christmas falls on a Sunday, so... We will be having a Christmas morning service, no Christmas Eve service, and then that Christmas Eve or that Christmas evening service is canceled, as well as on New Year's Day. There will be no New Year's Eve service, but there will be a New Year's Day morning service, and then no evening service that night either. But um, we did not mention before, no Christmas Eve service. And I think that's it. So, Nahum. Can you remember the last time you read through Nahum? Have you ever read through <laughs> Nahum? Uh, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right. <clears throat> but there's grace. So just thinking this through, um, finished Revelation not too long ago with Pastor Rob. Um, on our senior study, we're kind of going through this time of looking at uh, we're going through Thessalonians, so the rapture is right there. So in studying, in seeking, in looking, uh, many questions, many things encourage us. You want to dig in, and obviously the rapture is right there, and the rapture is right here, right? Any moment we believe, looking up, if you believe in a pre-trib rapture, which you don't have to believe in that if you don't want to. You can be wrong if you choose, but <laughs> to totally... But in all of that, then there's, you're looking into verses for that, and this day of the Lord keeps showing up. And my heart was, and my thought process was to be teaching on looking into more this day of the Lord. When is it? What is it? What does it entail? And uh, thought I'd be going to Zephaniah next, which I might be going to after Nahum. Um, but then all of a sudden, I just had Nahum on my heart. So I've been studying and studying Zephaniah for weeks now and uh, had this thought in Nahum, and because I am so diligent at cleaning and picking up my stuff, and no, my wife's not laughing yet, <laughs> I've, I mean, it hasn't even been a year since I retired, so it's not like I've retired that long ago, but um, I had a box of stuff that I packed up and brought home from work. And I don't know what kind of stuff you keep at work, but most of it is stuff I don't need right now, and uh, it's been sitting in a box. So I finally got around to putting away some of it, and as I'm going through it, out of nowhere, I still have no idea where it came from. Uh, there's a piece of paper with my own handwriting on it, on an outline of Nahum. I'm like, I don't remember writing this. I've never taught on Nahum. I'm like, where did this come from? And I know I did it as I'm deciding whether I'm going to teach between Zephaniah and Nahum. So I'm like, okay, Lord. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking when I did that, but uh, here we are. Nahum, and just a couple things before we get into it. Um, it's a peculiar book. Um, it's, to the best of my knowledge, there are other prophets that wrote to the northern tribes, the southern tribes, God's people. Um, they mention kings and areas that were not Jewish or Israel. But this is the only book that I know of, I believe, the only one that is actually written to non-believers. So there's, there, there, there are people and stories and people are mentioned in it, but this is specifically written to them. Um, so Isaiah has prophecies in his, the book of Isaiah towards nations, but the book of Isaiah is generally speaking to the Jews. So it's a little bit peculiar in that avenue, and it talks a lot about God's wrath. 
God's not happy with them. So another reason why it's peculiar, because that word peculiar is actually a word translated. So this, his wrath is a peculiar thing, but it also ties into the end times. Is the end times, it's a time of Jacob's trouble, and it's a time of God pouring his wrath out. And I think sometimes people get confused, as Pastor Rob has mentioned, and as we've heard it taught before, that there's a difference between going through a tribulation, a trial or a difficulty or correction from God, as opposed to going through his wrath. And I think people don't understand the difference because they don't really fully grasp God's wrath. Well, I don't think you can read through Nahum and not grasp God's wrath. And I'm, I'm not going to get ahead of myself, but he actually says he's going to dig their grave personally. So he's not happy with them. <laughs> and and we'll, we'll get into that um, probably not tonight, but there's this burden. And I think the size, so what does it have to do if you're not saved? You need to be awoken. If you are saved, do we, the Lord has challenged me here, what is the greater blessing, what we're saved to or what we're saved from? And I think the more you realize what you're saved from, the greater what you're saved to becomes. What did Jesus do for you? If you don't understand God's wrath, then you're not going to really fully understand what Jesus did for you. So there's something here for us believers too. Too much is forgiven. Um, one, one loves much, right? He told the people that were skeptical of the love of the prostitute that he forgave. She, and it's not that we, some of us have more to be forgiven of than others. It's that some of us are more realized, realized more often what we've been forgiven from and of that, that causes us to love him more. Um, and just to see God's grace, I mean, a lot of times when you read of, in the Old Testament, you get into the wrath of God being poured out. Say, so, oh yeah, that old God of the Old Testament was this mean God. Thank God his, he sent his son, because his son Jesus is this nice, loving one. Um, it's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven, and the God of the Old Testament was gracious. And it even tells us that in this, in the midst of this pronouncement of judgment, he mentions slow to anger, he mentions... Um, that he's loving and that he's a good God. He's a good God because everything that they needed to have not had to gone through this, he supplied for them. They could have been saved. So we'll read the first two verses and then we'll start jumping around. The burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. So if you were wondering who... Nahum is. He's an Elkishite. I'm sure that helps. <laughs> Elkash is not anywhere else mentioned that I know of. Nobody I've read knows anything about it or where it was from. It's not clear. However, it, as Pastor Rob mentioned recently, multiple times, we hear his name kind of mentioned in the New Testament often. Capernaum means the city of Nahum. So we believe this is right around the Galilee, and it's probably where Nahum was from. So even though it's not mentioned specifically why that's what it was named, we have no other reason to believe that's not where Nahum was from. So it's kind of neat how here is this prophet speaking this stuff. He's in the book. Not much is known about him, yet God allowed his son to basically minister out of there. This is a whatever that's worth. The burden. So this is something that he's declaring against Nineveh, and it's a book of the vision. Again, we see that commonly. So He's called a seers, right? Prophets in the Old Testament used to be called seers. They'd see stuff. So he had a vision. So God speaks. And of course, he couldn't speak to him through the full word of God that hadn't been written yet. In fact, he's in the process of writing it. So it's not uncommon that people would have visions. They would see something, and then they would write it down. So this is the book of the vision. And it tells us in verse 2, God is jealous, and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. That should just send a chill right down your spine. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. So I guess that would only keep the chill there if you're his adversary or if you're his enemy. Right? So I still picture the Apostle John. I mentioned this many times because it just kind of hits me. So John grew up around Jesus and knew of him. And he was constantly learning more. And all of a sudden, he saw Jesus do things. And he was like, wow. And next thing you know, 
he empowers him, and John, the Apostle John can do some of the same things that he did. He was able to do miracles, and you kind of almost get on equal footing. And next thing you know, you get comfortable around him. Sometimes we forget. And next thing you know, he does something else. And then you're like, whoa, he, he's walking on water. They're on the boat shaking. They forgot. You know, sometimes it's, we get comfortable, and God reminds us who he is, not by yelling, not by screaming, not by any means that I would think of doing to get people's attention. And, uh, you know, he, he got to a point where he's at the Last Supper, he's there, and he's laying his head against Jesus' breast, and then he sees him elevated up into heaven, and they're all just sitting there, and the angel comes, why are you sitting there with your jaw on the ground? He's like, what do you think we should be doing? I don't know, maybe you, you're an angel. You see stuff all the time. This is new to me. You know, I'm not around. I haven't seen the four living beasts. I'm not sitting there. This is new to me. And then uh, he just serves his whole life. He's known as the the apostle that Jesus loves, and he's close, and he's there, and next thing you know, he has a vision too. He's taken up into Patmos. In Patmos, he's taken up into heaven, and he sees Jesus, and he says, I fell on the ground as dead. I'm like, I thought I knew you. <laughs> who, who are you? And we, I want that to happen to me. I think we should all want that to happen to us. And I'm just thinking, we're, we're, gonna, we're looking forward to the rapture, and we're going to be taken up, and what are you going to see? It's going to... It's like... What is this? Where am I? What is going on? Pure joy, pure love, no sin. Everything's going to be incredible. It's going to be awesome. And we're going to be with him seven years. There's going to be a feast. He's going to be singing over us. We're just going to feel the most love that we've ever felt in our whole lives. Everything's going to be great. And then we're going to come back with him. Have you read what happens after that? I think we're going to be like, I thought I knew him. He's going to be mad. (laughs) It's going to be intense and he we're right there behind him watching and it's kind of like I don't know if I understand or even let myself go to that place to see him in that way and I think there's some health to it he has this book here for us so let's see what it does um Nineveh is in trouble it's right so it tells us in in verse two that God is jealous and uh of course jealousy is mentioned as a fruit of the, of the flesh. So is it wrong to be jealous? Is jealousy a sin? Um, well, God doesn't sin. So most of the time, and again, in context, if I'm, if, if I'm, if I'm jealous of somebody, it's because it's a, something being taken away or it's, it's motivated by my own self. God is jealous for us. He knows what is going to harm us. He knows the end result of anything, and he doesn't do anything because he wants. He does something because he blesses. He wants to bless us. So he has a plan. He knows the things that are going to harm us. He knows what's going to harm us. He, doesn't, he gets jealous for us in the fact that um, you go through the whole Old Testament. If you don't get this point, you're not going to understand how God deals with nations that are distracting and harming his people. You won't understand. The har- if it's your own kids, you'd get it right? If somebody's coming after your child and trying to teach them something that's really bad and wrong, it's going to drive them away from God. You get jealous for them. Now, it's not, you get angry because it, they're doing something to take them out of a place of blessing and, and hurt them. And, and so, and one aspect of my jealousy, if I'm jealous of somebody and I think my wife is cheating on me and I get mad at her, but jealous for somebody is I'm protecting my wife and I'm upset with, the, the, I'm angry at the cause of that. It's for her benefit that I'm doing it. It's not for my own. And it says that God is jealous and avenges. So to avenge something means to make it right, which means he's jealous because something was made wrong to begin with. And the the Lord's avenges and is furious. And hopefully, you know, that's not wrong for that to be strange. You know, I don't often sit in God's lap and think of his fury. You know, I don't think when he showed up as a human uh, and acted and walked in flesh, that side of him wasn't seen, except when he got mad at the religious leaders that he was jealous for his people, and he rebuked them harshly because he knew what, was, you know, what he was protecting. Um, and as you go on, and we'll get into that next time, I believe, it, it goes right from there. The Lord is slow to anger. So we see his whole character and nature uh, in that. But in, to get a background, what, where is Nineveh? What, uh, this is pretty incredible. If you would uh, flip to, well, we won't go there. Nineveh was founded all the way back in Genesis very early by Nimrod, Noah's great-grandson. 
and so it's been around a long time. So there's a lot of history. So this is kind of incredible. There's, you know, we think of nowadays just because we hear people talking about evolution and we hear about, well, there's this person out on this island, they never heard the gospel, what about? So we think of everything as far away and that we have to go to it. But we know that Adam was the only person around and he knew God and everything went out from him. So everything started with a knowledge and then it lost as it went out. It's not like Adam had to go out and find people because they didn't know about God and tell them. So that's one thing. So in the beginning, we also see in Genesis that people rebelled against God. They, did, they knew what they were doing and they did it on purpose. So uh, Nimrod was not a good person <laughs> at all. So this city was started bad. But that's centuries ago. And, and all of a sudden, now all of a sudden, after centuries of this nation not hearing from them because they, the whole Bible was written to tell us the things that we needed to know about Jesus. Jesus said the whole thing is written about me. So there's a whole lot of history in areas and places and things going on that really aren't relevant to Jesus. But he didn't judge them until Jonah. That's a long time. Talk about patience and slow to anger and he lets things go. He's not out there thinking and furious and I can't get my own way and throwing a temper tantrum. He just waits and waits and waits and things slowly get farther and farther and farther away from him to the point where they're actually affecting other people. And he's just like, now it's got to stop. And I'm going to warn you. So what does God do when that sin comes up before him? He sends a preacher, Jonah. What does God do when he sees their works? He sends warning. And uh, God saw their repentance, and what did he do? He sent salvation. So a lot of people got saved. So this is probably 60 to 100 years before the next time we see them showing up in Scripture. So if you think about that, that's 100 years. So every, who was alive at the time of the, of the revival in Jonah 60 or 100 years later? None of them. And that's kind of alarming to think about it, right? So if you have... Everyone that's born is born not saved. God starts all over again, right? There's a saying, God doesn't have any grandkids, right? He has children. And if their children get saved, then they're God's children. You don't get saved by being born or something. So the gospel goes forth from word of mouth, from people talking. And think about the honest of that. Because if we don't say anything, within 100 years, no one will know God. Every generation is born not knowing a hundred years less than that after this revival, they're not doing good at all. And all it takes is one generation. Things can fall fast. Countries can fall fast. Nations can fall fast. The judgment of God isn't necessary for anyone. All you need to do is have repentance. And it says that a nation that the Lord is their God is blessed. But the other side isn't talked about very often. And the same thing is true. You're in trouble if you walk away from God, which our country is tempting him daily as we go through this. But just to kind of get an, an eye on this, uh, if you'd flip to Jonah, which is only a couple pages to the left in your Bible. Again, revival comes. These people, which we probably won't get into until next time, were very bad. We're going to read here that there's a revival and they all repent. Not long after this, they end up becoming really bad. Before revival, they were really bad. Jonah knew who these people were. He wanted nothing to do to them. Yet to see his heart in understanding who God is. Uh, just the first chapter, let's read the first three verses. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. That great city, it's not great because it's a great place to go. It's great because it's large and powerful. And cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Here is a nation that has wickedness that God sees. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he's like, God, if you're going there, I don't want nothing to do with it. Flip over to chapter 3. <clears throat> and these are short chapters. 
And as we know, Jonah went the opposite way. Tarshish is the opposite way of Nineveh. Jonah wanted nothing to do with the salvation of Nineveh. And I don't blame him. If God told me right now, Mark, I want you to go to Iran, I'd be like, uh, I don't think so. <laughs> I, I know what they're capable of. I know what they can do. I know what they do to Christians. I don't think they want to get saved. It's not so much, and that would be just more out of fear of self-preservation. Jonah, on the other hand, wasn't scared. He actually knew God well, and he, he tells us right at the end of the book, he's like, I don't want to go because I don't want you to forgive them. These people don't deserve, and uh, again, I've mentioned this before too, but I think one pastor I heard teach said that Jonah was probably the humblest person, author of the Bible, other than obviously Moses was self-declared, and God told him to be the humblest, but, and then you'd think like, he, this, what would make this guy humble? But he's like, everything that you're reading, he wrote. He wrote all this about himself. He's just telling you the truth. He's, I don't think he was proud of this. I don't know how you could write this and be proud of it, especially if you know God that well. Uh, but Jonah chapter 3, verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. God had a, a convincing chat with him, and he uh, changed his mind to go to Nineveh, um, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah is going to preach to Nineveh what God wants Nineveh to hear. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord, now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. It would take three days to walk the breast of Nineveh. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk, and then he cried out, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And this is not the king, that is the king when Nahum is preaching. And he, verse 7, And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and cry mightily to God, yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. They were a, an extremely violent people. I'll probably be bringing up some of that. They've actually found some of the remnant of Nineveh within the last hundred years. Many people were skeptical that this even existed. There was no evidence of it. Um, but come to find out, just like God is going to tell us in Nahum, it's going to be burned, it's going to be ashes, it's going to be covered, and he wiped them off the face of the earth, and we didn't even find the remnants until recently. And in those remnants, they found pillars, and in the pillars, there's writings, and many different kings wrote some of the things that they did to the people, and they were violent people. <laughs> they, were, they were bad. Um, <clears throat> and he caused it to be proclaimed seven throughout the Nineveh by the decree of the king and nobles, saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, don't let them eat and drink. So he's calling for a fast. We talk, even they fasted. We talked about that this morning. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. So he's like, pray, fast and pray. It's a good way to begin a revival. Let everyone turn from his evil way, repent, and from the violence that is in his hands, obey the word of God. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? So this anger that was proclaimed from Jonah, who didn't even want to go, had an effect on the people there, and they decided to repent. The fear of God caused them to change. 10, then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. He saw repentance. And God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. All you have to do is listen to God. He's really smart. He's really strong. <laughs> you can't run from him. Jonah tried. Four. So that's the state of Nineveh at the time. Now we're going to look at the state of the prophet. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, 
slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. It's almost like Nahum read Jonah. He, he knew the people. He knew the prophecy. He knew the God. He's like, this is who God is. And Nahum was the right one to deliver that message. Jonah wanted to deliver Nahum's message. He's like, let me tell them they're smoked. And God's like, no, you need to learn about me. <laughs> Their time's coming. <clears throat> Verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. God says, Sometimes it's right to be angry and sometimes it's not. You need to know what spirit is leading you. And sometimes we just get mad because things are affecting me in a way that I don't like. And other times we can get mad because evil is harming good people and we need to do something about it. You need to have, there is a righteous anger and an unrighteous anger. Jonah's not happy and God wasn't happy with him. Five, so Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it shade until he might see what would become of the city. Verse 6, And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over the Jonah, that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm, and it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Verse nine, then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, it is right for me to be angry, even to death. But the Lord said, and he wrote that about himself. Can you even imagine him admitting that? I wish I was dead, I ruined my plant. <laughs> really? Jonah, you, you have, you're so carnal that you want shade from the sun, but you are willing to get on a boat and go to people that are brutal. It's, it's kind of like Elijah. He, he slays all these prophets and then he runs from a woman. It's like, that's us. I don't, I don't deceive myself. <clears throat> Peter. 10, but the Lord said, you have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. So who, who, did, who did plant it? Who did grow it? Who is the one that caused it to grow? God. God cares about things. God cares about people. God cares about the people in Nineveh. Verse 11, And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and much livestock? God cares about the people in Nineveh. However, he's a righteous God. He can only grant forgiveness when there's repentance. When you believe in his son, there is a reason that they're there. They're not just there for comfort. They're not just there for their own self. There were a tool being used. God did use them after this, um, but it wasn't necessarily because they wanted to glorify God. So in Jonah, we see that God saw their works and sent warning. He sent a prophet. And then in Nahum, we see that God saw their works and sent warning, but they didn't see salvation and there was consequences for it. There's consequences for what you believe. There's consequences for denying God. There's consequences for calling God a liar. We view sin, I think, differently than God views it. We view a lack of faith different. We view unbelief different. Um, if you go to Revelation and it talks about Outside are unbelievers and cowards. Those are the first two things he mentions before all the sexual sin that many of us look so quickly down upon because to us it's an abomination. You know, I don't like the thought of me being a coward is as bad as that because I'm offered cowardly. I'm often unbelieving. Fortunately, we're under the blood, which is everything. Um, if you would turn left... So here's to Isaiah 10. Left in your Bible to Isaiah 10. So we see God started, the city started out bad. It went bad from there, and it went bad for centuries. And then next thing you know, we hear about them, God sends Jonah. 
and then we see a revival. And in Isaiah 10, verse 1, we read, Woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees, who write misfortune which they have prescribed, to rob the needy of justice and to take what is right from the poor of my people, that widows may be their prey and that they may rob the fatherless. What will you do in the day of punishment? So God's mentioning through Isaiah, there will be a day of punishment. And in the desolation which will come from afar, I'm bringing people from far away to punish you. To whom will you flee your help? And where will you leave your glory? Without me, they shall bow down among the prisoners, and they shall fall among the slain. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Verse 5, woe to Assyria. And the Assyrians were the people, the king of Assyria lived in Nineveh, and this was the place, the capital of Assyria. He says, woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. So God is saying, I'm going to judge my people, I'm upset with them, and I'm going to use Assyria to punish them. So here are the Assyrians being used by God. And the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I will send him against an ungodly nation and against the people of my wrath. I will give him charge to seize the spoil, to take the prey, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. So I'm going to use them to punish my people. Yet, he does not mean so, nor does his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off not a few nations. For he says, the king of Assyria, are not my princes altogether kings, is not Kalno like Karchemish, and is not Hamath like Arpad, is not Samaria like Damascus. As my hand has found the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images excelled those of Jerusalem and Samaria. My gods are greater than the gods of Jerusalem and Samaria. 11, as I have done to Samaria and her idols, shall I not do also to Jerusalem and her idols? Therefore it shall come to pass when the Lord has performed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem that he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his haughty looks. For he says, by the strength of my hand I have done it, And by my wisdom, for I am prudent, also I have removed the boundaries of the people and have robbed their treasuries, so I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. 14. My hand has found like a nest the riches of the people, and as one gathers eggs that are left, I have gathered all the earth, and there was no one who moved his wing, nor opened his mouth with even a peep. Then God asked, shall the axe boast against him who chops with it? Or shall the saw exalt itself against him who saws with it, as if a rod could wield itself against those who lift it up, or as if a staff could lift up, as it were, not wood? And we see this heart in Nebuchadnezzar. We see this heart in uh, the king of Assyria. We see a lot of people. God uses a nation to accomplish his will. It's exactly like you see Satan. Why does God allow evil? Well, there's already evil that's out there, but God... (laughs) Is, is the Lord of all. He is the king of kings, and he will allow things to happen to accomplish his will, and if your heart was wrong in it, you're still getting punished for it. He says, if I use him to punish my people, I can choose to do that, because my people I wanted to correct. And isn't that what we're talking about, the difference between wrath and correction? God punishes his people, and he might use bad people to do it, and if the bad people that he used to do it had a wrong heart in it, then they're going to actually receive his wrath for doing it. He can do whatever he wants, and he does do it. And we see it over and over and over again. So just because you're going to say, God used me, you can't say, you know, for to him be the glory. Because if he used you, he's the one that did it. You're just a rod in his hand. You're just part of his plan. He gets all the glory. And if you try to take that glory away and take it upon yourself, it doesn't, it doesn't work out good. Um, verse 16, therefore the, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the Lord over many. He's a, he's a general. The Lord of the army will send leanness among his fat ones, and under his glory he will kindle a burning like the burning of a fire. So the light of Israel will be for a fire and his holy one for a flame. It will burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day. And we see that that is actually how 
Nineveh ends up falling and ends up getting torched and burned. 18, it will consume the glory of his forest and of his fruitful field, but soul and body, both soul and body, and they will be as when a sick man wastes away. Then the rest of the trees of his forest will be so few in number that a child may write them. And then he goes on to say how he's going to put Israel back and uh, restore them. So there's always restoration for God's people. There's always a good end for God's people. It doesn't matter who or how it happens, and there's never a good end for God's enemies. He can do what he wants, and, and he proves it, and he does it over and over again. So there's a difference between dis, discipline and destruction, and there's a difference between correction and vengeance. And uh, God avenges, and we, back in Nahum, shortly... And uh, just to not draw this out again, I didn't want to get too far into it tonight, but um, it tells us again, the, the Nahum 1, 1 and 2, the burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Alkishite. God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. And if you go down to verse 11, it says, from you, speaking of, Nineveh, comes forth one who plots evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. And uh, we, most of us, I believe that he's talking about 60 years after Jonah spoke, 60 to 100, probably 60. We know there's a huge revival. We know through Isaiah that God used them to punish his own people. Uh, they have a new king, they have probably a whole new country, and everybody seems to have changed, and uh, God's heart towards them changed. And now they're going out, they're extremely proud. This is right in the middle of the epitome of their power. So this isn't a nation that got big, got small, and they're slowly dwindling away. This is the most powerful nation on the face of the earth at the time. And uh, if you would turn with me to Isaiah... 36, which if you probably won't be too long, will be in this exact same portion of scripture in 2 Kings pretty soon, so sorry Rob, but it's not for a little while. <clears throat> we see 60 years after this revival, new king, new people, how are they doing? And uh, sometimes we can get surprised when we read through Revelation 2 and 3. You know, they started out so well, what happened? You know, you've lost, you've left your first love and how quickly things can fall. And those are the people of that generation. And I'm just going through Deuteronomy and Joshua then Judges. And it says, you know, this, the, they served the Lord all the days of Joshua. Then it says they knew of the Lord after that until the, all the elders died. And then after that, it says they knew not the Lord. Two generations away, they don't know him anymore. And, and, and things can follow that fast. So after this big revival in Jonah, 60 years later, we get to Isaiah 36. Now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. See Isaiah writing about this. Then the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh, and the, the word Rabshakeh basically is a title for a chief. And I believe this is the person that Nahum 111 is talking about, this Rabshakeh, with a great army from Lashish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And he stood by the aqueduct from the upper pole on the highway to the fuller's field. Verse 3. And Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe and Joah the son of Asaph the recorder came out to him. Then the Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this in which you trust? I say you speak of having plans and power for war, but they are, more, they are mere words. 
Now in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? <clears throat> there was a revival 60 years ago. The whole, the, probably the greatest revival in the whole Bible. The whole nation repented. 60 years later, they're like, who do you trust in? Uh, the God that your dad believed in? <laughs> Evidently, you didn't go to Sunday school. Take your kids to Sunday school, by the way. It's important. <laughs> who do you trust in? Verse 6. Look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all who trust in him. So you're, if you're looking to man, you're in trouble. Seven, but if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall not worship before this altar? Now, therefore, I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you're able to, on your part, put riders on them. How then will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Have I now come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, Go up against this land and destroy it. Now he's claiming that the Lord told him to come and fight. I'm in God's will, you're not. You guys are in trouble. You have no help. We defeated everybody. We're haughty. Verse 11, Then Eliakim, Shibna, and Joah said to the Rabshikah, Please speak to your servants in the Aramaic, for we understand it, and do not speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshikah said, Has my master sent me to your master? And to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall, who will eat and drink their own waste with you? He's like, if these people are going to go through it, they deserve to hear it. They need to know what's happening. And God allows them to hear it. And God wanted them to know it too, because God wants them to know where the delivery is coming from and who saved them. It wasn't Hezekiah. It wasn't Isaiah. And it wasn't Egypt. It was the Lord. <clears throat> 13, then the Rabshakeh stood and called out with a loud voice in Hebrew and said, hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria, thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make peace with me by a present and come out to me, and every one of you eat from his own vine and every one from his own fig tree, and every one of you drink the water of his own cistern. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, the Lord will deliver us. Wouldn't you like that to be said of you, people talking bad about you, saying, oh, they're just going to tell you to trust God. He already knows what Hezekiah is going to tell him. So what are they saying? God's not trustworthy. He's going to lie to you and say, trust God. Would to God that people would... Our enemies would say that about us, that that's all we would say. Verse 18, again, halfway down. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered it from the hand of the king of Assyria? And that's true. The king of Assyria did have power. He was defeating people, and he was being used. <clears throat> 19, were the gods of Hamath and Arpad, were the gods of Sepharvaim? Indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their countries from my hand? that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem by my hand, from my hand. But they held their peace and answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was, do not answer him. 22, then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshikah. And so it was, Verse 137, when the king Hezekiah heard it, that he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. Crying out, praying, fasting. Verse 2, then Eliakim, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe and the elders, yeah, they came to him. Verse 3, then they said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy, for the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of... I'm sorry, I did skip verse 2. So it says they, he basically sent them to Isaiah. So this is what they're telling Isaiah. For it may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshika, 
whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, so this is Isaiah's response, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. So God's taking it personally here. He is now all of a sudden, 60 years ago, they all got converted. There was a change of heart. There's different people there now. And now all of a sudden, they're, they're getting in, in his face. And I don't know if you've noticed, sometimes people don't get saved. And, the, and it's kind of like Jesus said, when you cast out seven demons and they find that, or a demon, and they find it swept and kept in order that the last state of the man's worse than the first. Kind of like some people say the worst person about telling you to quit smoke is an ex-smoker. Sometimes people that go through the whole system and said it didn't work are the ones most against religion. You know, I tried and it didn't work for me. And now they're like right in your face, and it's kind of like you tried it. The Spirit of God was inside of you. Did you read your Bible every day? How often did you pray? I, you know, what they meant by try it, I don't know what that means. <clears throat> but somehow the next generation didn't want anything to do with the revival from the last generation. And God is like, now I'm taking it personally. And they're blaspheming against me, verse 7. Surely I will send a spirit upon him, and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. So now Hezekiah has a choice. Who am I going to believe? This army outside, everything that he said about warring and nations and fighting is true. But what did God say? And it doesn't seem likely. He has no help. How is Hezekiah going to defeat an army that defeated everybody they've ever come up against? It's the most powerful people in the world at the time. And it, and what are you going to believe? And sometimes we can be in a place like that, that we, that we can sense and feel defeated, and there's no hope but God, right? Verse 8, Then the Rabshika returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he heard that he had departed from Lashish. And the king heard concerning Turakot, the king of Ethiopia, he has come out to make war with you. So when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, the king of Judah, saying, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Look, you have heard what the king of Assyria have done to all the lands by utterly destroying them, and shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered those whom my father have destroyed, Gozan and Haran and Rezeph and the people of Eden who are in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, Hina, and Iva? And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Not that the Lord hadn't seen it yet. Not that the Lord didn't know the heart of the king that wrote it. But now he's seeing Hezekiah's heart. And that's going to be the thing that moves God. Then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim. And where does he dwell between the cherubim? He dwells on, a, on the mercy seat, this God of mercy. So he's like, I know you're on a throne, you're a king, and I know you have mercy for those that are your children. You dwell between the cherubim. You are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the king, kings of Assyria have laid waste all nations and their lands. What he's saying is true. They have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but they were the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they destroyed them. Now therefore, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kings of the earth may know that you are the Lord, you alone. Then, 21, then Isaiah the son of Amaz sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. So, and again, sometimes, you know, why pray? If God already knows, he already knows 
what he wanted to do. He already knew what was going to happen before they asked. But the Bible tells us sometimes we have not because we ask not, or that we ask amiss. Ask, because you don't know. Just ask. He wants our heart. He wants to know where we're at. This is his response concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised you, laughed you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head behind your back. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you have reproached the Lord and said, By the multitude of my chariots I have come up on the height of the mountains to the limits of Lebanon. I will cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypress trees, and I will enter its farthest height to its fruitful forest. I have dug and drunk water, and with the soles of my feet I have dried up all the brooks of defense. And, of course, we heard through Isaiah, he's like, does the saw say to the hand that he, what is the saw without the hand? It can't do anything. It's just a tool. He, they don't realize I was just being uh, fruitful in what I've done because God wanted to accomplish something. It wasn't because of my strength. Pride came in. 26, did you not hear long ago how I made it from ancient times that I formed it? Now I have brought it to pass that you should be for crushing fortified cities into ru- heaps of ruins. Therefore, their inhabitants had little power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field and the green herb, and as the grass on the housetops and grain bladed before it's grown. But now I know your dwelling place. God's telling Sennacherib, I know where you live. I know your dwelling place. You're going out, and you're coming in, and you're rage against me. If you're a believer... You want God to know where you live. You want to know that he knows your name. You want to know that he knows what you do and when you go. And that very same truth, if you're not a believer, scares you to death. Same truth, opposite side of it. 29, because your rage against me and your tumult have come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips. This is the exact same thing they did to people. And I will turn you back by the way which you came. This shall be a sign to you. You shall eat this year such as grows of itself. And the second year what springs from the same. Also in the third year sow and reap. Plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. And the remnant who have escaped of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. And that's the only way you can bear fruit upward is if you take roots downward. You've got to dig yourself in, be established, standing on the rock, getting nutrition, the word of God, the Holy Spirit coming, and then you'll have a fruitful life. And he's saying, you're saying you're going to destroy Jerusalem, but I'm telling you, they're not done. I'm not done with them. God is going to defend them. 32, for out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and those who escape from Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, will do this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor build a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return, and he shall not come into the city, says the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it from my own sake and for my servants David's sake. And of course, if you're Hezekiah reading that and you see these people outside, you've got to be thinking, how is that possibly going to happen? And of course, we saw not long ago in Kings, that the city was surrounded, they had nothing, and he, the prophet said, you know what, by tomorrow you're going to be buying stuff for nothing, you're going to have more food than you know what to do with. And you're like, even if the heavens, the, the door of heaven opened up, how would that be? God can change things quick. God can change things quick. How is he going to do this? We'll end here, the last four, three verses. Then... The angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. Stop and think about that. That's a game changer. It's like, does God need our help? No. Sometimes God allows nations to go to war. Sometimes he says he, they fight and he gives them strength and they gave them skill and David's hands were made for war and equipped them. And other times God just says, I got this one. I like In Joshua it says that God threw stones at the people. And he says, more died from the stones than, than from the sword. And he's like, God can, God's got good aim too. <laughs> he's like, if God's for you, literally, who can be against you? 
185,000. And when the people arose in the morning, there were corpses, all dead. This is all dead. Most corpses are dead, but I just kind of like the language. <laughs> yeah, God's going to kill you with death. Another one wrote, he said in Nahum, he says, I'm going to dig your grave. It's a sight of God that we don't see very often. Um, thank, thank you, Jesus. 37, so Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed. That's always a good thing to do when you wake up and your, enemy, your army's laying dead on the ground. You have no idea why. Uh, I think I'll go home. <laughs> I'll pick a different fight today. He returned home and remained at Nineveh. And that's not the end of the story. Now, it came to pass as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god. So here we go. 60 years ago, there was a huge revival. They gave up, they repented, and they decided, you know what, we're going to worship the Lord because we're scared. And now his children, not long after that, are now not worshiping the Lord. Nisroch, his god, that his sons, Adramelech and Sherezer, struck him down with a sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. Then Eskaradon, his son, reigned in his place. So we see this changing of hands. So first of all, there was a king when Jonah came through. Then there was another one that the, the, the revival didn't last. But you know what? You get saved, you get saved. Your kids are not guaranteed to go to heaven. They need to get saved personally. No one, you can't pass that on, but you can expose them to it and how important it is to preach the gospel. And if we think that we're in these last days, there's a lot I didn't get to, um, but that I will get to. You know, the Lord's hand is not short and that he can't save. Um, ever since the beginning of time, they said that this judgment is coming with a flood. And people are like, well, he's not come back yet. What makes you think he's going to come? Well, he's coming. Right, we're going to get to that in Peter. And uh, then how ought we to live if we believe these things? So we know that about 60 years, 35 years prior to Nahum is when Sennacherib, um, this chapter happened, and the city ended up getting destroyed about 612 B.C. when the Medes and the Babylonians and the Scythians, they created an alliance, they flooded gates um, of the Kosher and Tigris River, and they destroyed a 10-story high brick wall. This place was a fortress, kind of like when we read of Jericho. This was undefeatable unless God wanted it defeated. And then it was nothing, and it happened. And uh, that doesn't mean that the Babylonians, the Scythians, and the Medes should be prideful because they're just a rod in God's hand, too. God does what he does, and uh, we're just people, and he's awesome. And uh, so learning about where they came from, because if you, if you don't understand who these people were and what they did, and we'll get more into it uh, next time if there is another one, because the Lord's coming back soon, about how they lived their lives and the things that they did and how brutal and, and horrible these people were, you're not going to understand judgment. But it, the Lord just put it on my heart, because so many times people will say, I, I don't believe that a loving God could do that. And um, if, if, if there's cancer in your body, what do you do with it? Do you feel bad for it? it it's killing you. You've got to get rid of it. It doesn't do anything good. Nobody feels bad for it when it's removed. And there are, are nations that God says are cancerous. They're going out there and they're harming people. If all you're doing is teaching and having kids and perpetuating sin, I, I don't want more fuel for the fire of hell. That's not my goal. If there's nothing good, that there comes a time when you're just done. I need to start over because all you're doing is causing harm to other people that want good. And uh, he, he just has to say, I'm going to cut it off. And uh, that's something that the Lord spoke to me a while ago because, you know, war. It's, you know, a lot of people say that the Old Testament is violent and all these things happen. It was still a violent world that we live in today. But war doesn't increase death. Everyone that dies in a war was going to die anyways. The question isn't, am I going to die? The question is, is, what could you have done if you remained? Were you done with God's time and what you were here for? And were you saved? Where are you going? And uh, just to reiterate that, that God is a vengeful God, but that it should only cause us the more to thank God for sending his son because God poured his vengeance out upon his son. We can next time too, maybe Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. Um, there's a whole lot of places that you can see what you were spared from. You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken so that we don't have to be forsaken. So, uh, Father, we just thank you for uh, saving us, Lord, from 
your anger, which uh, as a child of yours seems strange to us now, Lord, but I remember um, daily fearing because I knew I was guilty and uh, just setting us free. And um, some of us, if we've been saved for any length of time, might have gotten comfortable around you, which we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that you invite us, that we can sit on your lap, that you speak to us, that you have good plans for us, that you're a loving God. Um, but we just pray that you would blow us away by your awesomeness, your power, your, your miraculous ability, and remind us that you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords, sitting on the throne in glory, and um, that you're worthy to be praised. And uh, remind us of these things, Lord. And if anybody listening isn't sure that which side of salvation that they're on, Lord, we just pray that you would uh, convince them, that you would reveal that to them and invite them to yourself, Lord. Thank you. Help us to re remember how good you actually are, Lord, that you are actually as good as you declare yourself to be in the Bible. And when we read, help us to remember what you saved us from as well as what you saved us to and uh, cause us to be a worshipful people. And, uh, we look forward to seeing you face-to-face -face soon. And uh, keep us busy uh, while we wait. In Jesus' name, amen.